music in the UK. Before I go ahead with anything else, I'd like to first of all thank Ambrose Miller, Artistic Director of the King's Lynn Festival, for encouraging me to organise this event in the first place and advising on it. And also Mo Lovett at the Academy of Ideas for helping with the preparation of the event, and she's also co-chairing. So if anything goes drastically wrong, she'll help me sort it out. Or if I lose connection, she'll step in and hopefully everything will run um, smoothly. Uh, also, before I go any further on in terms of this event, I'd like to do a plug for the Academy of Ideas. Um, the Academy of Ideas has been organising throughout all the lockdowns. Throughout, since the beginning, the Academy of Ideas has taken it upon itself to organise open discussions about all of the challenging issues that we face uh, today. And they've been doing that at no cost to the participants, uh, working in an office uh, just to keep things going and keep our minds alive and alert to the way things are developing at the moment. And also to distract us from um, the more depressing aspects of uh, things that are going on. The Academy of Ideas um, exists to create a public space where ideas can be contested without restraint. And if you like what we do, you might consider joining. Um, you can join the Academy of Ideas as an associate to support the work that's done by the organization and benefits will accrue, which includes discounted tickets to all the Battle of Ideas events, as well as um, other regular bulletins on articles and, and so podcasts and so forth. So there's a lot you can get through participation in the Battle of Ideas, in the Academy of Ideas. And um, you can join, I think Mo is just putting a link up. You can check out how you can join there. And if you don't want to join, just um, you know, give a donation if you can afford it, because that really helps. So on to this event. The classical music is a universal art form, as you know. It's popular among millions of people all over the world. And it's hard to take seriously the possibility that it's under threat of being severely diminished in the UK. In fact, reports suggest that's the, the opposite is the case, and it has become even more popular under lockdown. And I'm not alone in switching from Radio 4 to Radio 3 just to cheer myself up in the morning. Yet people working and passionate about classical music believe it faces many challenges in the UK in the early 21st century, from reductions in public funding to challenges of elitism. Its virtual eclipse from the school curriculum is extremely worrying. And obviously there's the crisis that's been generated by the interminable lockdowns. So what is the way forward for this music? Now, <clears throat> I don't think that nostalgic yearnings will ever wash. And we have to think about how we might recast some of the questions. For example, how we need to think a bit harder about arguments for public funding, which is obviously a major issue, um, and consider different ways of thinking about the future for classical music. And to do this, I've got this a really uh, fantastic panel of speakers, uh, and I'll introduce them now in the order of speaking. Uh, first on the list is Stephen Johnson, he is a writer, a broadcaster and composer, and I haven't heard his music, but I have um, seen his writing and broadcast and I've heard his broadcasting on classical music and its history. And that's I found that quite eloquent, eloquent. He's done a long series, uh, which I've been listening to over the past few weeks called Discovering Classical Music, which was originally on Radio 3 and is now on BBC Sound. So I really do a plug for that. I recommend it if you haven't come across it, if you're like me, a bit of a um, ignoramus. 
Um, and I've just read his latest book, How Shostakovich Changed My Mind, which examines how, examines how a great composer synthesizes his own awful, awful experience to create an ex exquisite masterpieces of huge emotional and intellectual depth and impact. And um, I really recommend that book. Next up is Dolan Cummings. He's author of two novels, the most recent, a modern take on Dante's Inferno, which is an exploration of morality, justice, and the human soul, which he's discussed at an Arts and Society forum last summer. It's very interesting. He also writes on a wide range of political issues and social issues, and he's an associate fellow of the Academy of Ideas, contributing, among other things, to its annual festival, the Battle of Ideas. Uh, and then the third speaker is Ivan Hewitt. He's Telegraph's, uh, the Telegraph's classical music critic, and he writes several columns a week on concerts and musical works in ways that more, more often than not make you really want to attend to those uh, uh, events. And he's recent, recently written some very useful pieces about the state of classical music under lockdown. He's a regular contributor to the Battle of Ideas, and um, I've always found what he has to say both nuanced and thought-provoking. Now, Gabriella Swallow was going to be here, but she phoned um, not that long ago saying that she'd got a really serious fi um, family crisis she had to attend to, so she was really devastated that she can't come. She says she never cancels, so this is, you know, she just couldn't not cancel this time. So that's, I'm very sorry about that, but I think that with our three um, speakers, we're going to get a really good discussion underway. I've asked them to make brief observations um, and challenges around the, um, uh, brief ob observations about the challenges and opportunities facing the field of classical music today. And they'll take about five minutes or so each. And then we'll have a short discussion on the panel about the issues that they've raised. And I'll, after that, I'll open up to the audience for questions and comments. And before I do that, I'll explain a little bit more about um, joining in the discussion. Okay, so over to you, Stephen. Thank you, Wendy. Um, I must say one thing I've been thinking about a lot during all this ordeal that we're all going through at the moment is that um, is to remind myself of, that over the last 35 years and several trips to Russia, I've met people who survived the siege of Leningrad and um, heard from them stories about how music, classical music not least, helped them survive and how they managed to make classical music under those appalling conditions. And I remember particularly one old man who grabbed my arm and wept as he told me what Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony had meant to them in the middle of that confinement. And I think about, well, thank you for mentioning my book, Wendy, you know, my own experience of trying to make sense of and come to terms with various forms of mental illness and trauma and how the part that music has played in dealing with that and how unfortunate I've been to be involved with neurologists and medics and psychologists, psychotherapists, as well as musicians in discussing these issues of how it is that music can help us deal with appalling circumstances. And it doesn't surprise me at all to find out that classical music is becoming of more interest, not just for the cliched reason that sometimes given that it's relaxing because the kind of classical music I tend to enjoy tends not to be relaxing anyway, but because it can meet us in the most extraordinary places of pain and emotional privation and help us make sense of 
what we're going through. Um, I'm reminded sometimes of Nietzsche's remark that without music, life would be a mistake. I'm very much aware of that, the truth of that right now, and have been coming back to music in whatever form I can find it, and finding, again, that it gives strength to endure, and also somehow or other even transform and transcend the experiences one might be going through. Okay, so why classical music in particular? Why not any form of music that speaks to people um, in large numbers? Well, partly because I think a healthy musical culture is a diverse one, not only in terms of the human demographic that it represents, but in terms of the musical styles and genres that it embodies. If I mention uh, three cities which represent, I think, musical, incredible musical vibrancy, the uh, Vienna of Brahms, Bruckner, Mahler and Schoenberg, or the Paris in the 1920s, or the New York in the 50s of Bernstein, Elliot Carter, Miles Davis, Kurt Weill, and some amazing pop music as well. You realize how important it is that when there are strongly individual styles and traditions side by side, and when they interact and cross-fertilize. So different kinds of music, I think, can do different things for us. If I were young and single and wanting to meet someone, I don't think I'd want to go out clubbing to classical music. But at the same time, if I want to take, be taken on a journey and help myself make sense of pain and inner darkness, I can't think of anything better than a, one of the great Beethoven string quartets. Is classical, it's been said that classical music is a dwindling interest. No, I mean, I, I, just to give, you were talking about um, Grousing interest. I, I went online the other day, Wendy, and um, had a look at Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on YouTube. Um, there are around 40 recordings of it all completely at the moment. Four of them have views into the tens of millions, and one of them, Leonard Bernstein's performance from 1989 after the Berlin Wall came down, has had 110 million views rising steadily. My mathematician nephew tells me, um, working out the statistics, that it's being watched at a rate of about 15,000 a day, um, which, and it's 200 years old. That tells us something enormously significant, doesn't it? At the same time, today, exactly today, my niece who's studying jazz at Trinity Laban got in contact to say that Herbie Hancock has gone on YouTube doing a video about how for him the most important piece of music is Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, as a result of which she said, jazz students all over the country have been sharing videos of the Rite of Spring and listening to it. And she got several of them to contact me to ask me questions about what's he doing there? What time signature is this in? How does he make those rhythms? And I had a great deal of pleasure in saying, you just wait till you look at what Stravinsky's doing there. Is classical music, we're going to knock into this dreadful word elitist. Well, here I do start to get quite angry. And here I am in two senses of the word, I think, in a privileged position. Privileged because you can probably tell from the way I talk that my background was a relatively privileged one. Okay, I'm not going to be like most middle class people apparently these days and pretend to have working class origins. I don't. However, I grew up in the north of England, in Lancashire, quite near to a very poor, very working class uh, town, Wigan. And I remember from my boyhood going into Wigan that there were three classical record shops. 
sustaining themselves and sustaining business in that town. There were two amateur orchestras, one a youth orchestra and the other composed of adults, all playing only classical music. The Northern Brass Band tradition had, its repertoire was dominated by arrangements of the lighter classical, but not always the lighter classical end of the repertoire either. My grandfather, who as well as being a uh, a grammar school headmaster was a, a, a semi-professional choral conductor, went all over the north of England conducting choral societies with Elgar, Handel, Bach, Coleridge, Taylor, all sorts. I still have his scores. There was huge interest in it. And I think that the thing that's contributed to this idea that elitist is its elitist was the destruction, which many of us will remember, of the school music education system that began under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. And um, the fact that that eventually made it, having music lessons a more and more privileged thing to do. Um, however, uh, there are still things going on, like in my little Herefordshire village, there's an extraordinary woman called Becky Blackman, who's a little ball of energy who runs the Herefordshire Music Trust, who somehow or other manages to annoy people into giving her enough money to fund people at school, poorest children at school to have music lessons and to have buy instruments and things like this. And she, what she manages to achieve, these, this small galvanic person, I mean, every time I'm out of the war walking my dog in the village, I expected to come up and collar me about something. Um, that these things are going on in the most extraordinary ways. And, uh, you know, I think this idea of elitism is actually being fostered largely by the people in the very establishments that were once there to promote things like the arts and ideas. I think it's being fostered in the BBC. I think it's being fostered in the supposedly high-end newspapers as well. I think there's an awful lot of middle-class self-hatred behind this. And I think that it is something that I do not see much evidence is shared in the wider public. I really don't. So I think we have to, we have to, we have to get over ourselves in this kind and imagine that we're pushing at a door which is heavily weighted against us and locked. It's not, it's open. The only thing is how we get the question, how we get back to the, something like the music education system we have in the schools. Well, you know, I don't think we can be sort of dogging the manger socialists and say it's got to be the state or anything. I think, you know, we do have to be to consider the possibility of private sponsorship in the words of, of the gospel of St. Matthew, make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. We have to do everything we can to get the support wherever we can find it to, to, to arise this and also not be afraid of the fact that learning to play a classical musical instrument is not easy. Two friends of mine who are rock musicians, real rock musicians, they were both highly successful in the 80s and 90s, one of them said, the marvelous thing about the guitar is that anybody can play it. The truly terrible thing about the guitar is that anybody can play it. Classical music, learning classical to play a classical music instrument is more of an ordeal. It's a long process and I am still in my 60s learning the piano and learning it hard. But my God, it's worth it. And that's the kind of thing we have to get off, not to be apologetic, not to be ashamed, not to make desperate, pathetic attempts to sound cool, but to sound that we believe in what we're doing. And if I do that, I think we can we can get a long way. Anyway, I think I've had my allotted time, haven't I, Wendy? So I'd better stop. <laughs> Fantastic. A really great opening for us. Okay, Ivan, over to you. Oh, no, me next. Oh, okay. Yep. Well, um, yeah, Gabriella's not here. Ah, I see. Okay. 
Um, well, thank you, Stephen, for, for launching us off with such energy. That was, that was fantastic. Um, goodness, the future of classical music. What a, what a sort of impossible topic, really. Um, um, and thinking about it, I suppose it, it, it divides naturally into two different questions, doesn't it? It, it, it could be taken to mean, what do we need to do um, to ensure that classical music, as, as we have known it, you know, in recent years and decades, continues? Um, to be healthy. Um, another question which one hears asked more and more these days is what, not so much what classical music is and how can it continue, but what ought it to be? You know, it, there's one encounters quite often this, the sense that um, classical music as it, as it exists now suffers from various deficiencies um, and that these need to be repaired, you know, it, um, both both economic and, and moral, in a sense, um, that, that there are certain things about it that are reprehensible and that need to be, as it were, fixed um, if it's to deserve to continue to have a life, you know, amongst us. Um, so um, thinking about that, um, I, my thoughts naturally turn to this word diversity, which uh, Stephen's already mentioned. That thing which, in a way, classical music ought to have, shouldn't it? it ought to have it more than any other form of music um, because it has these claims to be a kind of universal musical language, highly contentious claim these days, uh, what one looks like to make a lot of people really annoyed. Um, um, why universal? Because it's, it's rooted in this uh, extraordinary uh, syntax and also a narrative of developing history which can be communicated at a distance, you know, through um, through textbooks, through through learning, it doesn't rely on the kind of guru-pupil relationship the way, for example, Indian classical music does, and that's the thing that makes Indian classical music much so much harder to export, and so much, in a way, less uh, uh, impactful on the world. It hasn't become global the way that uh, that classical music has done. So um, it's it it has. In its, in its absolute fabric, you know, that which allows it to communicate beyond cultural boundaries. It has this extraordinary, powerful syntax and vocabulary that, that, that is infinitely malleable and allows itself to assume a million different dialects all around the world and can be seized on and turned to different uses. Um, so it, in a way, it is, it is diverse in its essence. I think that's, that's the most striking thing about classical music. It's, it's not a local dialect. Um, uh, it's huge already. It's a house of many mansions. And so the, the demands that it become diverse can strike one as a bit peculiar, you know. Um, what could be more diverse than this thing, this music, that's, that's this amazing thing that surrounds us? You know, it, it has, you know, national forms, genre forms, forms that have developed and then vanished through history. Um, but nevertheless, we are faced with this demand. You know, it must be made more diverse. And it's usually taken to mean that it must be become more diverse in terms of, of um, nation and race, that it has up to now been a predominantly white thing. Um, uh, and that's a, a barrier and, and regrettable. Uh, and that image of classical music as a wholly white thing has, in, has involved the, the silencing of many composers and performers of color from many countries. Um, I suppose particularly America, but not only America um, at all. Um, and it is urged upon us that 
that to fulfill its promise of being genuinely uh, universal, in a sense, classical music needs to, ought to re rescue these sidelined voices um, and bring them into the in, bring them into the fold, as it were. Now, um, th that strikes me as an altogether laudable thing. And just speaking personally, uh, thanks to the efforts of people who've been trying to recover these lost composers um, from outside the white mainstream, I've discovered many wonderful things. You know, the the, um, the sonatas of Florence White, um, the symphonies of George Walker, just to name two composers. Um, and so, you know, classical music has acquired more rooms in its mansion, if I can put it that way, added more rooms to its mansion. Um, where I sort of draw the line, though, is the suggestion that somehow this tradition is, is somehow uh, uh, compromised and rotten at its core, that its, that, its, um, that its claims to be universal are nothing more than a kind of fig leaf for a kind of bullying, colonizing influence, which has causes it to travel around the world and um, swamp and choke native musical traditions. Um, I, I, I think there's, there tends to be a, there's a kind of urge to, to wish that classical music is other than it is, you know, and that often when, when faced with the more extreme demands that music cast off, that classical music is, um, you know, a, a colonialist outgrowth, um, um, I'm tempted to reply, you know, that that history cannot be remade to, to suit our present ideological purposes. You know, um, the it, it may well be that the, the inherited masterworks that have come down to us um, are, 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 overlook many things, overlook many um, um, composers of colour, overlook many women composers, let's not forget that. Um, and it is absolutely right that we take steps to embrace them and and those things are indeed happening to take the further step and 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 declare that that there's, there's some kind of original sin woven into the fabric of the music i think is is, is patently absurd and it has the same ultimately effect of if, if we were to act on it and you know seek seek to banish the the, the, the tradition um it would be the most colossal act of self-harm because it, just as just as uh, parish churches are part of the fabric of our towns and cities, and if they were to vanish one day, we would we, our cities would become unrecognisable. I think so too our cultural fabric would become unrecognisable if classical music were to vanish from it. Um, so I, I think the calls for diversity are to be welcomed in one sense, but 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 regarded with caution uh, in another. This isn't quite the opening gambit I intended, I have to say. I, I have other things up my sleeve, but 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 Stephen, uh, I have to say, stole some of my best lines. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it, it, the, way, the way it tends to happen with these things. Uh, so maybe I'll just leave you with that thought for now. I'm sure it's something we'll come back to because it's such a colossal theme in, in the current yeah. scene. But for now, I'll, I'll just leave that thought there. Yeah. That, that's good. I, in fact, what I'd like to... First of all, I have to apologise, Ivan, because you're right, I, and Dolan, I have to apologise to you because... My original order was to have Dolan um, next after Stephen and then you, Ivan. But obviously I got myself completely confused. Oh, um, it's, it's good to keep us on our toes. You know? Yes, that's right, yeah. So, I, yes, I think that's very useful. And what we'll do is um, once Dolan's spoken, you know, we can come back to a couple of these points again before going out to the audience. Um, okay, Dolan, over to you. 
Um, thanks. I, I think what, what Stephen and Ivan have had to say has been really interesting. Um, I am not a musician at all, so I'm speaking very much as a, a listener, a consumer of music, um, rather than someone with any uh, deep knowledge um, of, of, of anything. Um, but um, obviously, music needs listeners as well. So I thought I wanted to talk a bit about how the experience of lockdown has particularly made me think about um, the role music plays. And Ivan was asking if anyone had been to any good concerts lately. <laughs> so I think, I think actually the last event I went to was the week before lockdown. I went to one of the free lunchtime concerts at the LSC in central London, um, a piano recital, um, which I've been going to quite regularly. I remember it vividly actually because none of us knew what was, was about to come, but I was very self-conscious about coughing in public. So already coronavirus was kind of something we were concerned about. Mm -hmm. um, but I also mentioned it because you know, when you go to a classical concert, much more than any other kind, or certainly pop concert, you are concerned about thinking about others around you, having a certain decorum, this degree of being on, on best behavior, I think is um, part of the experience. And that might be contentious, but I would suggest that. Um, and then when, I suppose when I really realized that, that lockdown was going to have a huge impact and going to be a bigger deal than I had hoped, was when I realized I couldn't go to the Good Friday performance of a Matthew Passion, which I usually do every year. And the one we usually go to is at um, St. George's Hanover Square um, in Mayfair. So this particular um, concert every year um, is, is actually part of a service. So you, you get a sermon, you get prayer thrown in. And I've never been quite sure, but I, I, I doubt whether most of the people who are there are there for the religious service. But it just seems to fit, obviously, Bach composed and um, the passion for liturgical purposes. And it feels kind of, um, uh, it feels right. Uh, in a sense, if you don't reject that kind of thing. And it, it made me think, again, that there's something liturgical about all classical concerts, in a sense. Um, there's this is almost a, a spiritual aspect to it, which comes through more obviously than an occasion like that. And again, a certain reverence that we have for the music, which again, it maybe is something that's a bit more controversial. People would say we should try and get rid of that side of it and just enjoy the music. And I think, well, we can argue about that, but I do think there's something um, precious about, about that side of things. I mean, for me, at that particular point, even um, in the interval, going to the pub around the corner for a pint is almost part of the, the ritual, part of the liturgy um, that I look forward to every, every year. Um, so it's, it's kind of embodied. And, you know, going out to, to, to a concert, to the opera, whatever it happens to be, it's part of social life and, you know, something that we do with others and it has, has a, that sort of social dimension. So, yes, there's decorum, but there's also enjoyment and conviviality. And I think those are those are important aspects of, um, of the tradition um, as, a, you know, classical music as culture rather than just as a, a set of artefacts. So obviously we, we lost, missed out on all of that um, during lockdown. Um, and, you know, I've spent, uh, I'm listening to a lot of music, recording, as I was saying, this, uh, and Stephen, there's this fantastic stuff available on YouTube and other um, platforms. Um, and you can experiment with stuff that you, you think you might like, and then you can switch it off and don't fancy that so much anymore and try something else. And that's good, um, but maybe there's a downside to it too. You know, you can even, you can pause to go to the loo, or if you've got wireless headphones, you can even just take it to the loo with you. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> Certainly, there's a, there, you don't have the, the, the reverence that you might feel at a live performance. Um, 
So I think there's, there's obviously upsides to, to, to uh, being able to experiment a bit more to having music at your convenience. And that's particularly important for people who haven't been exposed to it, that they can, they can, they can you know, you send someone a link and they get to experience something at least partially um, version of it. Um, also, what I noticed over the past year is I was using music more instrumentally, uh, pardon the pun, but um, to block out distractions. I'm not used to, to, to working at home, so I would put on headphones and put on music that was quite uh, full on and intense to block everything out. I found myself listening to a lot of Jean-Michel Jarre. I don't know if that counts as classical really, but it sort of hit the spot in terms of the intense experience. Um, the, the Vivaldi double concerto is also quite effective. About in a sense, like, you know, you can disapprove. Some people are very precious about saying you, should, you shouldn't listen to classical music as a distraction or as background music. It should always be the focus. And I think that, that there's a place for that, but there's also, we can give it more, particularly when at home. Um, but basically, there's lots of interesting stuff that we're checking out, but I'm a bit looking forward to getting back into a concert hall, back into a room. And I think when we talk about access to classical music, I would argue that that's an important part of what we want to get people access to. So it's not simply that you get people going into schools and doing outreach, or that that's really important. And I agree with everyone's um, the argument that, that that's you know that's been lost and the, the, the cutbacks are, are disastrous and all, and all that. But I also think it's important that uh, people, when they're exposed to classical music, are learning something of that that deeper culture that I was talking about. And one way to put it is it's a different relationship with time that you sit in silence and things are framed in a particular way. You, you, um, you don't, you're not in control. You have to sort of submit yourself to the experience. And I think that's, that's important. Um, the, the, the last thing to add to that is that I think sometimes you get, uh, certainly cultural institutions are guilty of this. If you look at the videos that they produce, particularly to put out on social media, um, they'll grab someone after a concert and say, what did you think? And they'll always say, oh, it was wonderful. I was on the edge of my seat. It was fantastic. I was in raptures all the way through. And I always think, well, talk about setting yourself up to fail. Because, yes, sometimes that's the experience of, of, a, of a great concert. But sometimes you're going to be a bit bored for some of the time, especially if it's something you're not used to. If you're trying something new, it's going to be challenging. You might find your mind wandering. And I think that's okay as well. I mean, I kind of think of this as a, aesthetic Pentecostalism, you know, in Pentecostal churches where everyone has to be fully charged and feeling it all the time. And if that isn't happening, there's something terribly wrong. And I think that's a, it's a real mistake to think that, um, that the, the arts in general have to be like that, but certainly classical music. Um, and I, I, I did get in trouble at a, a Battle of Ideas uh, discussion a few years ago, we were talking about opera. Uh, and I was suggesting that to get into opera, you have to learn to appreciate some pretty weird stuff. Um, and, you know, I might have gone slightly over the top in talking about, um, you know, bellowing breastplated sopranos and horned helmets and stuff. People say, well, that's not all there is to opera. And of course, that's true. But there is that. It's part of opera. Some people um, love it. And, and you, you have to be open to experiences that you might otherwise think that's not for me. And that's one of the problems with about access and elitism and so on. If you just mean that something should be made comfortable as soon as you encounter it, then you're gonna miss out on an awful lot. So I think we do need to kind of do outreach and, and uh, I, I don't mind experimenting and, and, and making things accessible in different ways. But I think we should never lose sight of the fact that there's something objective there 
that it's part of a bringing it to you. You have to kind of come to it in a sense. And you, we can help people do that, but I think without losing sight of what's special about it. So that, that for me is a concern. You know, that's thinking about what, what, what's happened over the past year and what I would like in the future. I do think we should let class music be different um, be not like other culture, be a bit weird um, and a different kind of experience. And I, I want people to have access to that. Okay, that's, yeah, really useful points there as well. Um, so before we go out to the audience, I just wanted to check if uh, any of anybody wants to develop in particular in any of the points raised. I've got a couple of questions myself, but before we go for that, before I sort of raise them, just want to see what you have to say. Stephen, maybe, is there any thoughts that came up for you uh, from what the other speakers were saying? Well, I mean, um, Ivan mentioned the diversity thing and how important it is that people shouldn't feel excluded as contributors to and listeners to, classic, to classical music. I mean, there's a much more selfish way of looking at this from my point of view, which, you know, if you look at, for instance, I had a documentary the other day talking about sexism and when women were not allowed to study medicine. And I'm thinking, what kind of absurdity is this where half the population and all the talent that that might include and all the good that that might be do is excluded for something as crazy as gender you know there if there are people from other cultures out there who can write great symphonies and great operas and great piano sonatas and string quartets i want to hear them i don't want them to feel that they can't approach this and express themselves in that way for, for because of some bizarre cultural barrier you know it, if, 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 and certainly if, um, as now I, I get an awful lot of correspondence now from the Far East, as it used to be called, uh, from China, from Japan, and particularly from South Korea, um, where classical music is hugely important and even aspirational amongst young people, as far as I can see. And um, they're, they're approaching something that is not rooted in their culture, historically speaking, but which they seem to be able to identify with to an extraordinary degree. And they're certainly making it part of their cultural experience. Um, uh, and um, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't see why, I think Ivan probably may be able to say a little bit more about the kind of the, the people who want to try and prove that there's some kind of original sin in, in classical music. You know, I still think that, I was reading the other day about how Beethoven, um, played for one of his friends and former pupils, uh, Dorothea von Erdmann, who was a very fine pianist after she lost her child. And as it was said, she was frozen in grief. And as Beethoven improvised for her, um, uh, she suddenly dissolved in tears. And according to two accounts, the process of mourning at last began. Well, it's very clear to me that Beethoven is still doing the same thing for people today. And to me, it's very, very much included. And um, if that's the case, then, okay, I might look at him and say, yes, maybe he is compromised in certain ways. But if I need that music, I need that music. And um, I'm not going to raise it. You know, you, I feel sometimes like a person whose life has been saved because somebody threw him a life belt when he was drowning. And I'm then invited to an academic conference on the significance of life belts in a post-colonial world. And I'm told all sorts of reasons why life belts should be regarded with suspicion. I'm sitting at the back with my arms folded thinking, perhaps we're missing the point here. Um, that actually one of the reasons why people listen to music and why so such well, 200 years after Beethoven wrote these things, his music is still reverberating for people in such extraordinary ways 
is because they need it. It's not just a pleasure with knobs on. It's not just an entertainment with snob appeal, as some people seem to think it is. It is a necessity. And nothing else, it seems, in, can quite meet our needs in quite the same way. Um, and um, that's why, in the end, I think that I look on some of these these issues, these 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 debates and in inverted commas with with mystification, and think we need to get back. And maybe one of the advantages of this, if there is are any, of this crisis we're going through at the moment, is that we can ask ourselves these really existential questions about what it is that music is for. And um, it seems as though interesting answers are beginning to emerge again, which is a huge relief, actually. Ivan. I'd just like to pick up on something Dolan said about um, a concert, I suppose of any kind, but, but including classical music, um, presents experiences that happen at different levels and that one shouldn't expect it to be transcendental at every single moment. Um, and that the occasional moment of wool gathering when your mind might drift to something else is actually perfectly okay, you know, it's not a sin. Um, and it, you know, it's easy to get the impression that um, our ancestors, you know, uh, the audiences of the 19th century were, were somehow much purer spirited than we were. Uh, you know, they, they, they always sat bolt upright, you know, with the program there in front of them. And, and and never will gathered for a minute, you know, and I I don't believe that's true at all. I think if they were more engaged with the music, perhaps it's not because they were purer souls than us. It's it's because they did it. They were doing it at home, and I do think there's a a really profound connection between doing and appreciating. Um, um, you know, one one talks about active listening, but I think active listening is itself rooted in active doing, if I can put it that way. And the reason those audiences could connect is that they'd probably played the symphony they were listening to at home in a four-handed version, you know, um, and they, so they already were connected to it and they could feel the contours of the music in their fingers, because we are, after all, embodied creatures, you know, I, I sometimes worry that classical, I mean, they say this is a as a feature of Western culture as a whole, don't they, that it, it roots us in our heads exclusively and forgets about the body. Um, but, you know, it, it is an embodied art form and perhaps we'd be better listeners if we were doing, if our bodies were engaged more in, in the doing. And this brings us back to the whole business of how music is neglected in schools now. Um, you know, I think the surest way to have a healthier audience in future is to, is to, is to ensure that more of us is playing or are playing. Yeah, I was going to say music education, ask you comments on music education. Yeah, Stephen, you wanted to come in and then maybe I'll ask Dolan again and then we'll go out to the audience. Yeah. No, but just to amplify the point a little bit, you know, I, I, if like my grandfather, who I mentioned, hearing a Beethoven symphony in a concert was a special event, a very special event. You got to know that people could get to know that Beethoven symphony by playing them in, in piano duet arrangements with his wife at home. And that was, you know, and the concert was a very special thing. And um, particularly for someone in the far north of England, where he would have yeah. to involve a major trip to Manchester. So we, the, the promiscuous availability of music at the moment is to some extent works against it in this respect. It's too yes. easy sometimes. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I, I think that's right. One, there seems to be a strange kind of inverse relationship, doesn't there, between the ease with, what, with which one can get at something and uh, the, 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 the degree of commitment and passion one puts into it. I, I, I always remember the story of how after the war, uh, the young Pierre Boulez 
was fascinated by you know the, the the 12 note music that had been created 20 years earlier but he couldn't get hold of it there were no scores anywhere and, and that made it this this extraordinary object of intense desire and the only way he could get the music the only way he could have a copy of Schoenberg's a wind quintet in front of him to look at was to borrow somebody's and copy it out yeah. he copied out the whole thing um and and if that's if that's not dedication i don't know what is you know um i i, I but, encounter but now we okay <laughs> no we could go back and forth here for quite a while so i'm just going to ask dolan to um come in um I, I think you know some of the points you were making about the experience of um the actual experience of live performance were really pertinent. But I'd be interested what you think about the music education issue, Dolan, as well. I don't know, say whatever you want, but I'd be interested in what you say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, obviously it's important. And, you know, as a, as a non-musician, you know, I went to a reasonably good school that had music education, but there, there was a kind of apartheid between the kids who, did, who studied music, who had had music lessons privately, and therefore were able to key into things and understand it, and those who weren't. And I always thought we get a bit of a sort, sort of, um, uh, would, you were either deemed to be musical or not. And it, it tempted to come down to whether, you, whether you're having private lessons or not. You know, I took recorder lessons. I didn't get very far because I lost interest <laughs> once I worked out the basics. Um, but um, the, the, the kids who studied music privately were, were, got a lot more out of music education. And I think you need to, there needs to be a bit more outreach to kind of uh, allow people, everyone to do that because otherwise it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you say classical music is elitist, so let's not fund that, let's not promote it, then oh surprise surprise, the only people who can who can do it are those who have a family tradition of classical music. Um, you know, so it's not just about the money for lessons; it's about having uh, parents who like classical music, who played themselves, who have uh, an interest in it, the cultural capital. Um, so I think. That's, that's as important as, as, as money, perhaps. I mean, I don't know the practicalities, but it is important. Um, and I think that, yes, it's, it's not fair to say it's, to, you know, to treat it in such a way that it becomes latest and then blame the, the art form itself. It's not about the art form itself in that regard. Okay, thanks. Okay, so um, I will ask, uh, I want to ask people now to sort of put up your hands to um, ask any questions or make any com comments yourself. I've noticed in chat there are quite a few um, comments already, um, but hopefully people will uh, be willing to kind of um, verbalize them uh, here. Yeah, we'll kind of get started now. So the first person on my list is Brian Kaplan. Okay, thanks very much for the uh, introduction. Uh, very interesting. Obviously, it's a very, uh, I think it's a very relevant topic for all of us. Uh, what nobody has said anything about is, um, what you might call contemporary classical music. Uh, I mean, I actually dislike the term classical intensely because it, it, it sort of implies old fashioned and, and fuddy daddy. And as we all know, we've got sort of generations of music that does all kinds of different things. Um, but what we don't really have is contemporary. We have lots of contemporary composers and we could all spend uh, you know, some time talking about them. But we don't seem, it seems to me, have contemporary composition that makes an equivalent impact on its audience in the same way that, for example, Shostakovich's music did in Soviet Russia or uh, Elgar's music during the Edwardian era or, or Wagner or Beethoven during the 19th century. And I think it might be interesting to explore 
why that is. And I'll just throw out something as a bit of sort of devil's advocacy, which is, you know, maybe if the self-hating uh, middle classes that, that Stephen referred to, you know, really got into power and started, uh, you know, banning different parts of the musical repertoire. Maybe that's exactly what the contemporary classical world needs to really <laughs> fire itself up to produce, you know, some something like uh, the Leningrad that's really going to shake up the world. <laughs> 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 okay, thanks, um, Brian. Uh, Shirley, you're next. Hi there. Um, I, I, yeah, this is really, this is a question because I have to admit that I, you know, don't know too much about the, the music curriculum in schools, but it does seem to me, although I know about education more broadly, um, but it does seem to me that um, the future of classical music has to be very closely related to what it means, what class, how classical music is seen within the, the school curriculum. And I get the impression, and tell me if I'm wrong, that it's been very much marginalised from the school curriculum as it, in the very limited way that it exists, I have to say. Um, but it's been very marginalised towards a sort of what seems to me to be a music making, which is nothing wrong with that, because I, I agree with the point that was made that, you know, that it's important. But music making that is more, it seems to be a bit more of an indulgence rather than something that is leading to something else. And specifically, I wanted to ask um, our speakers what they felt about the, the, um, the teaching and learning of notation, because that I think has been completely written out of, um, of almost entirely written out of the school curriculum. Um, but it seems, I, I think, I mean, it's something that I had, had the usual piano lessons after school and don't remember very much, but it, uh, notation is fascinating in and of, it, it offers something that is really quite distinctive and different, I think, about a way of, a way of expression and recording expression. It's almost like learning another language um anyway uh, but uh, and so i think that's a really sad loss and one that will have a real uh, sort of um, um influence on on the way that young people see play and appreciate music when as stephen said i think you know there's the promiscuity of access it isn't like music now isn't what it was when i was a little girl yeah. when you either went to a concert or you put on a record that you know somebody had bought and, and you'd like to listen to? Good points. Okay, good question. Um, next I've got is Renato. Good evening, uh, very interesting discussion. Uh, I have a question for all the three speakers, but I guess mostly uh, also Stephen Johnson because he's the one who mentioned this point. He mentioned quite rightly the huge interest in, in Western classical music in the Far East, in Japan, Korea and China. And uh, the, the question would be, what is it in those cultures that has made it easier in a way for, for them to adopt also classical music as one of their uh, tenets? And uh, what can we learn from that when it comes to trying to propagate also uh, the love for classical music in other areas of the world like uh, 
sub-Saharan Africa or the Arabic world uh, or, or even India for that matter, because we don't really have many great uh, interpreters, let alone composers of uh, uh, classical music coming from those areas. Thank you. Uh, those are really interesting questions. Um, I'll ask uh, Alka to, to um, ask a question next, and then I'll invite the speakers to come back and do a quick round on any of those. Yeah, you'll have to be very picky because there are some good, great questions there. Okay, Alka, are you unmuted? Um, it's a question for uh, Ivan, actually. Uh, Ivan, I just, I, I personally, I agree with uh, your view of classical music and of, um, and, of, uh, and of the panels, but I did want to press you a bit the difference between Western classical music and Indian classical music. I wonder if you could just explain a bit more what, the, what you meant when you said that um, the kind of limited influence of, of in, in this, in your example, Indian classical music was because of the guru-pupil relationship that tied it to a particular place. Um, because I just couldn't, I mean, I kind of get what you mean when you're thinking about a, a symphony orchestra, but then on the other hand, could you not also think of that symphony orchestra as being a combination, an amalgam of lots of individual music tutor, music pupil relationships? So I'm just, just if you could just explain a bit more what you meant by that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ivan, do you want to pick up on that last one and and then anything else? And uh, yes. Yeah? Yes. I'm happy to. Well, of course, there are those who say that the global success of Western classical music uh, is entirely due to the economic and military might of the civilization that produced it, and which went rampaging around the world, forming colonies everywhere, and you know, in its weight, bringing Shakespeare and um, Moliere and Beethoven and Mozart, you know, which, which were then imposed on the hapless, um, you know, um, indigenous inhabitants of those countries. And that's all there is to it. And there's nothing intrinsic about the music at all, which would lead it to have that power. Um, yeah, sorry, Tim, what were you? I was going to say, if that were the case, there would be lots of people making classical music in Africa and very few making a, a far classical music in the Far East, where our colonial influence has been far less. Yeah, indeed. It can be shot down in all sorts of ways. Yeah. You know? um, no, I, I suppose what I meant was, you know, that you, you can, um, rather like, you know, Western engineering or science or technology, um, our form of music can be can be encoded in textbooks and you know, printed in thousands of copies and sent off around the world. And you can, so you you can kind of acquire it, or at least at least the language of which it's made, sort of at a distance. I mean, that's not to say, I mean, I didn't, maybe I drew too absolute a, a distinction. Really, of course, we have a sort of revered master-pupil relationships in the West as well. But it's it's it you know in in India it's it, it maybe not now, but in the past. It was an all-consuming thing. You, as as a pupil of a of a of a of a guru or a pandit, you lived in the household. You know, and you you served at meal times, and you it was an entire it was an ethical training as much as a musical one. Um, we don't have anything of that sort. Of, you know, it it's in a way our for us um, music is rather hived off in, and and turned into a. A, a rather specialist and highly technical thing, um, you know, as symbolised in the in, in the grand piano, you know, which is as as, as potent a symbol of Western engineering as 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 a, as a, as a suspension bridge, you know. Um, 
so it's it is the, uh, you know as the sociologist Max Weber said it's it's it is it is a it is a, a very potent symbol of the kind of rationalizing uh, impetus in, in Western culture, you know, set down in rules of procedure, uh, an enormously complex harmonic system, which is which can be laid out as a, almost like a series of algorithms, you know, um, I, I guess, I guess that's what I meant. And therefore, it's, therefore, it seems to rise above the particularities of the culture that gave it birth, and it can be, it can be taken up absolutely anywhere. Um, mm. it, has, it has that okay. enormous, enormous sort of abstract power, if you like. Yeah, all um, right. A lot, of, a lot of other stuff. I'd, I'd love to comment on the contemporary on. music thing, but maybe I should come back. I don't want yeah. to. Well, you, you can <laughs> comment briefly. Well, um, uh, who was it now? It was, it was Brian, wasn't it? Uh, wondering why, um, although we have a lot of interesting composers around, none of them seem to have quite, you know, it's, one could say maybe Shostakovich was the last composer to have that absolutely secure place in the repertoire and an absolutely secure status as a great composer. Oh, that's a very contentious thing to say, but you, you know what I mean. It has that sort of un, unquestioned stature. Um, and I suppose it's because now we are surrounded not by, rather than being having composers who work within a language, we have a lot of composers who work within their own private dialect. Um, uh, which can be very interesting, but they inevitably feel a bit local and a bit limited. Um, and they're not buoyed up, as it were, they're not lofted up by the surrounding culture, you know? I mean, you, you think of a painter like Rembrandt, you know, uh, people get confused between Rem genuine Rembrandts and school of Rembrandts, you know, there are, you know, there are people argue about which is which. Um, now, th there is no school of, there are only individuals, you know? Um, and so that and that is diminishing. I think people are not standing on the shoulders of those around them or behind them. They are they are they are in a sense only as big as they are in individually, and that's inevitably rather small compared to Shostakovich or Beethoven. I think it's very important that you mention Shostakovich here because one thing that came over to me time and time again talking to Russians about Shostakovich, particularly those who knew him was that he had an acutely strong sense of social responsibility. You know, it wasn't, a, you know, I remember talking to Roger Scruton about this, and it was a very funny conversation once. He said, well, I don't like Shostakovich, but I think he's a good thing, probably. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, whereas an awful lot of these people who pour out their, their dark emotions in music, it's all about I. In, in Shostakovich, it's about we. And there is, um, if you think of one composer, contemporary composer, who does seem to be able to reach uh, a relatively big yes. number, James, James Macmillan. He is a Catholic. He is not only a Catholic, he is very active within the Catholic Church. He writes a lot of music for liturgical use. He works with choirs in churches. He has that very strong sense of being involved with, just as... Haydn, when he was writing at Esterhaza, knew all his audience and knew yes, yes. Who, what he could write thinking, oh, this will really annoy so-and-so or so-and-so. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, They'll like this in Paris. You know. and, and I can't stress enough how when I was an undergraduate and a postgraduate and was being told how wrong I was to like Shostakovich and Benjamin Britten and how bad these composers were, as far as I can see, basically because they were popular. Um, you know, there was a real sense that any of this was a distraction. 
that music was an almost solipsistic exercise and the harder it was to understand the better it was and that ideas of social responsibility well you have to go back to the Nuremberg rallies to see what all that was about and there was this still sense of colossal reaction against populism and against all the force the, the, the stuff that led to, to the horrors of World War II and against the Soviet Union too uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that that's begun to change but it seems that that still lingers an awful lot in our educational establishments an idea that, that, that you know a young composer student said to me the other day he was told that his music didn't look difficult enough on the page well you look at some of Shostakovich's music and it looks appallingly easy until you start to play it um you know uh, this there, there is a sort of still a, a kind of auteur about the idea of getting your hands dirty and mixing with the profane yeah. multitude and, and of course I mean as you, and Jimmy I mentioned James McMillan because he doesn't have that and it's yes. been given back to him in the response to his music, not on the Shostakovich level, but but somewhere comparable to that. I think. I think you're, I think you know to, to address the we, the any sort of collective, the we has to be manifested in the musical fabric itself. It, yes. it can't be totally self-created, otherwise, otherwise it does become solipsistic. And I think that that's the big that was the big problem with the modernist, especially the post-war modernist movement, wasn't it? Really, it was. Well, I, I, you mentioned Pierre Boulez. I've got to quote this because I want as many people to know this as possible. And I, I like what happened to Boulez in his later years. But I remember being at the Edinburgh Festival in 1999 when uh, he was the guest of honour and gave the festival lecture and they performed his Plea Selon Plea. Oh, yes, yes. Which is one of the hardest and least rewarding lessons I think I've ever had in my life. And the next day, and I remember talking to members of the orchestra afterwards, and they were all grey and miserable, <laughs> exhausted and fed up. And uh, the next day, somebody asked Boulez after his lecture, a very brave member of the audience, why is it that people refuse to love this stuff? And, and Boulez said, and I wrote this down on my program at the time to get this absolutely right, he said, perhaps we did not take into account sufficiently the way music is perceived by the listener. Uh, <laughs> I thought that it's was fantastic, a, isn't it? Yeah. That's almost like the Ayatollah Khomeini saying, perhaps I could have been more proactive on women's rights issues. You know, <laughs> the audience was almost the class enemy to be punished in the time that Boulez was talking about. And it's taken a very, very long time to get away from that. And one of the problems is, I think T.S. Eliot had a point, that a tradition seems alive, and the monuments within that tradition are alive when the order is being added to meaningfully yes, because yes. that changes the way you perceive the so the as he puts it the present changes the past and because classic a lot of the hardline uh, modernist thinking has taken such a self-punitive such a hell shirt attitude to this that that a lot of people feel at the moment that the tradition is not being added to in that mm. same kind of way mm. um and and we it, that would be something again i think that would enormously increase its sense of relevance for people yeah absolutely okay dolan and then i'll go back to the audience yeah i mean some interesting points just to pick up on that uh, uh, it's interesting that, that james mcmillan does write liturgical music um, the problem, though, is that the Catholic Church is almost as marginal in Britain uh, as classical music is as an institution. It's, it's not a, a, a mass um, uh, you know, in the way that it was when the, you know, the, the great religious composers um, were, were writing. And in the United States, where Christianity still is a kind of popular culture, if you like, 
the music is not good. The, the music that is popular in, in, in American evangelical churches tends to be what they call praise music. Oh, yeah. it's, it's very kind of cheesy pop uh, type thing. I mean, not to say there isn't, I'm sure there is wonderful music being written for churches, but it's not part of the, the vibrant culture of it to the extent that, that that still exists there. And I think there is a tension there. I mean, Stephen mentioned Roger Scruton. I remember him making the, making that distinction between uh, Janacek, who, who he likes, yes. and Schoenberg Berg, who he kind of grudgingly likes, but yeah. he yeah. sees a split there between Janacek engaging with a folk tradition, um, uh, you know, recording folk songs and trying to give yes. back to the, 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 the common people something that they would recognize, um, and the kind of the, the modernists who were making stuff up that only appeal to other academics. And maybe that's a bit of a caricature, but there's, there's, there's something there about a rupture between um, even the, the popular end of classical music and something which is a much more uh, limited appeal. Um, and I think that's definitely pronounced. And someone like James McMillan is, is, is actually probably one of the most interesting examples of someone who's against that or, or working against that tendency. Or mm -hmm. The other thing to throw in maybe is film music, um, which, you know, people yes. tolerate a lot more from film music than they would from music that they're asked to sit and listen to. Yes. Um, so that's Indeed. one element to bear in mind. I noticed Radio 3 for a long time has had a film music program. They now also have a video game music program. Yes, yeah, indeed um, they do. Which I, it seems a step too far to me because I'm, I'm not into gaming, but it, maybe someone knows better than me if there's something something in that. But yes, there, there, it'd be interesting to see if we could bridge that divide. Uh, and maybe the, the problem is that we don't really have a genuine popular culture, popular not in the sense of mass produced, but in the sense of mass engagement. Um, and you know, I guess it goes back to the points about music at home. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to pick up on was about the Far East, and you know it's become a, it's it's it's, it, it's I'm sure it's true that Western classical music is very popular, um, and it's become kind of a, it's a joke. You know, how do you know if a kid you see in the street in Shanghai plays the piano because he's not carrying a violin case? So, but 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 the reason for that isn't that Chinese or Japanese Korean kids spontaneously love Western classical music. The difference is their parents. And so there's a culture there that they're being driven into it to some extent. Yeah. And in, in the West, we're very reluctant to do that, very reluctant to say that you should be listening to this sort of music. I want you to get into it. Of course, it still happens, but it's it's more of a, a precarious. And, you know, the, the other thing that occurs to me is um, that migrants, uh, not so much now, but in the, in the, in the, in the US, uh, you know, the, Jewish community was hugely disproportionately represented in, in classical music because, again, parents were, who were aspirational would get their kids involved in that, and there was a, a move there to. to, yes. to I know there's people chatting on okay. on the chat about this idea of aspiration, yeah. and I think it's it's a really important element because it it does to some extent involve even parents who think, well, I don't like that stuff, but I want little Johnny playing the violin yeah. and, and 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 learning that this this kind of thing because it suggests that you're getting on and getting somewhere, yeah. and maybe. For some of us, that feels a bit artificial. Um, it, it, it seems like a wrong way for parents to relate to their children. But actually, there's always been that, and it's always been part of a vibrant culture. So I think there's a balance maybe to be struck or some nuances to be drawn out there. Um, you know, right. I, I don't think it's good for kids to be driven in like, you know, like tennis camps, so they're forced to, to practice 12 hours a day or whatever. But on the other hand, I think we shouldn't be indifferent to what young people are exposed to and what they're encouraged to, to take advantage of. Well, it's, it's interesting, I, I was talking- John, John, Stephen, sorry, I, oh, yeah. I wanted to go out. 
um, to other speakers. I mean, there's really some really useful um, points being raised there. So the next person I have on my uh, list is uh, Marina, Professor Marina. Hello, I'm Professor of Music at, uh, at the University of Cambridge. So I wanted to bring you some dispatches from the front line. Uh, why, I call, why I call it front line? Because, you know, over my 20 years there, I've been interviewing people yeah, who want to do a music degree at Cambridge. And uh, the, the changes over these 20 years have been very, very noticeable. Um, so so it's, it's very nice to talk here to, to each other because we're all on the same side and we agree with each other. So it's like, you know, just basically talking within our own bubble. But it's much more difficult to engage with this, um, even with issues of diversity, for example, when they're put to you in this very acute way, as they've been put to us, for example, uh, in the past year. Uh, and I can tell you that, you know, we call, we call ourselves a faculty of music, and we, uh, in, our, in most of our minds, music equals Western classical music. Well, it doesn't anymore, and basically we have to talk about Western music, Western art music as a separate thing, as just one of many things that you can study. Uh, and uh, this is the pressure that comes from students, you know, from our own students, sometimes uh, expressed in the most, um, in a very, very acute way. I mean, I can give you an example, you know, of a person saying, you know, you've given us a set work, which is uh, Bach's 48 Preludes and Fugues, and I feel that, like my horizons are narrowed by that. Yeah, so uh, it's not what, what we would necessarily agree with. Yeah, but this is how, how these questions are put to us. And uh, uh, when we have uh, people coming out to us to, uh, you know, interviewing to become students of the music faculty, you find a huge gap, absolutely huge gap between state schools and independent schools. It's absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's killing us because, you know, we, we basically cannot take anyone from state schools because people do not know anything about classical music, even if they, if they, you know, play an instrument, there is just kind of no culture, they are not immersed in, in this culture, and nobody tells them at school of, of how to, to investigate it and I suppose in, in their families that that doesn't happen. So there's a, this absolutely huge gap. So essentially we're perpetuating this elitist yeah, understanding that classical music is elitist because we keep taking people from independent schools. We basically you know, have to explain to our admission tutors that we, our, our quotas you know, cannot be as high. <laughs> we just can't maybe take one student occasionally. So that's one thing. And another thing that of course, you know, young people just are interested in different kinds of music. And that we just have to, you know, there's no point in indulging in nostalgia. It's not going to be like it was. It, the change has happened. Uh, so, you know, people are interested in studying pop music seriously at the university. They're interested in studying hip hop. They're interested in stu studying sociology of mu different different musics um, and music of different cultures. Yeah, so we, uh, I, I can tell you um, that we have cut uh, um, our history of Western music by a third next year. We will be teaching 30% or less um, history of Western music than before because we need yeah the curriculum is not <laughs> stretchable we need to to do other things so so it's a process that is going to keep happening and um, <clears throat> just the last thing that I'm going to to tell you um, is that we really have to look at how 
uh, we can use the new technologies to bring the young people and children into classical music because we do care about it. Yeah, and uh, I can tell you that my son, for example, got his enormous love for classical music, not so much from me or from his father, but from an app about the Ninth Symphony. You know, it was an app that he could play with and he found it extremely fascinating. So this is something that has made, you know, a huge difference, basically changed his life. So we have to, to look at these things. Um, I think that's all the points that I wanted to make. Thank you. Really, really, really useful points. Thank you ever so much, Marina. I think uh, those um, particularly sobering uh, comments about sort of like the pressures within universities, which sort of like on the one hand, you sometimes feel like universities ask for it because they're, they're so, um, you know, they seem to have stopped defending a lot of the uh, traditions, educational traditions that, um, uh, you know, have been in the past seen as important. Um, but at the same time, they're under real pressures from students and they seem to, you know, they, they obviously feel the need to respond to those pressures. So I think there's some very important points. Right there. One thing that I've forgotten to say, and um, I always feel that, you know, if we start, to, if we stop teaching fugue, for example, you know, we've, we're, we're just about teaching, continuing to teach fugue, yeah, but it's very hard to defend it. So if we stop teaching fugue, Basically, you know, and then Oxford will almost have stopped teaching fugue already. Yeah, so there will be nobody soon in 10, 15 years time in the UK who actually know, knows how to write a fugue. And it's, it's a sobering thought, but it's very, very hard to defend those practical skills, which are extremely time consuming to build up. Yeah, it's very cumulative, very long process. It's very expensive to teach people to do that. And this is all, this, these are the pressures that we're under. Okay, very good. Um, okay, so I've got quite a few speak, uh, people who want to speak now, which is fantastic. Um, and I will take a few more and then ask the, um, the panel to come back and comment and then take a few more and have a final set of comments from the panel and, and that'll be it. So I think that'll take us up to our time. Um, <clears throat> Ambrose. Um, I was very interested by what Shirley said and, and, and about schools and education because that is the root of the, the, root of the future problem, I think. Um, forget the parents, get the children and play to them. I mean, I became interested in music when I listened to Tchaikovsky symphonies and things like that. If you could get good young musicians to go into schools frequently and play, I think that would be an enormous help. That is an inspiration to want to learn. The parent, the children will soon get to the parents and they'll soon have lessons after that. That's, that's the first thing. Um, I was very interested by, by what was said about composers as well. I, I rather avoided Shostakovich too to begin with, but I've, I've given in now. I think he's wonderful. Um, I think the rot set in with Schoenberg, um, sacrilege to say such things, but uh, look as what has happened to, to composers who've been inward looking. I, in King's Lynn, we, we always have a composer um, for a, for a concert of about 15 minutes we start with a short interview then we have his music then everyone can meet him with drinks afterwards and a very reputable composer whose name I will not mention I said now who are you writing for are you thinking about your audience no no I'm thinking entirely about myself I was horrified um think if Haydn thought like that he'd been out of a job at Esterhazy I think um and then getting on from children if you can get children to be interested to listen and learn to play and want to play then they will go to concerts then you come to concerts and the next problem with that is the cost of concerts is so appalling um if we bring the rpo down it costs roughly to king's lynn this is it costs roughly about 400 pounds a player 
and in a, in a 700 seat hall, we're talking with all the costs of 35, 40 pound tickets. Could I get an Arts Council grant to actually subsidize those tickets? No, no, you can get Arts Council grants for education, but actually for concerts, never. And this is one of my greatest worries, as I'm sure you know about the Arts Council. If you look at lottery funding, 5% of lottery funding in January, February, and March went to classical music. I've been looking at some of the CRF, the COVID, um, COVID grants, and looking at two batches of those, of music grants, 83% of the music grants went to popular music and 17% went to classical music. And I think this is, if this goes on, we really have a problem. And that's besides the elitism, which we've got to get away from. And we should be fighting our corner on that for all we're worth. Have I covered enough? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, Ambrose. That's great. Um, all right, next I've got Mary. Um, and then I think I'll jump down a bit to ask Sapphire um, to speak. Um, sorry, others, I'll, I'll come back. I'll make sure I take everybody, but I just want to... Anyway, Mary. Um, I, I was quite fortunate in that my, both my parents support, were interested in music. My mother used to play the piano and my father loved opera, so he had the old records. It took a whole pile of records to do an opera. And so um, I, I was involved at an early age. My mother wanted me to learn the piano, but I didn't like the piano as an instrument and didn't practice. So then they alternated my classes. One week I would do the piano with my teacher, who was also an organist and a choir master. And then I would have a, a singing lesson. Um, and then I discovered the harpsichord and I realized that was my instrument. So I, I started playing, well, I started off with virginals because I couldn't afford a harpsichord. And then I got a harpsichord and I got a clavichord for practicing at night. And I really think what it was said to play the music yourself is really to understand it. You can appreciate a Mozart aria. You don't need to have studied music, but to understand Bach, you really need to play it. And I've discovered Bach by playing it and understanding how he came to write it. And on the question of modern music, I mean, there was an awful time when uh, it seemed that a tune was absolutely not at all acceptable. You know, Schoenberg and various, Stockhausen and various people like that playing. But now tunes are becoming respectable again. And the, the operas, uh, it was a period when operas were really, I just didn't really enjoy them at all. But now we've got back with the, um, the Colosseum with operas like Doctor Atomic and the uh, death of uh, all the John Adams operas. And okay. so I think things are getting uh, more approachable again. But I do, I think it's important that kids do learn. The teaching I had at school of music, it was a girls' school, was absolutely appalling. But okay. I think I do in, would encourage parents to, I let my daughters choose the instruments they wanted to play. And Mary, I love, I love music. That's me finished. Okay, thank you very much. We're just getting a lot. I'm going to take quite a few speakers now because uh, from the floor, from the um, audience, uh, because we've got a lot of hands up. Um, so um, I think I said Sapphire next. Um, I'm a postgraduate um, new music researcher, so I'm chipping in my two pence essentially. Um, Ivan, you said that you have a lot of composers who work within their own idiom. Um, and there aren't really schools of anymore, only kind of individuals. Um, and then Stephen, you said that perhaps maybe now composers are, oh no, in that concert, 
people were forgetting about the listener. Um, I mean, I disagree slightly with Ivan. Um, I think maybe there are schools still, um, you know, recently you've kind of got postmodernism, um, you've got Takamitsu, George Crumb, it's all over the globe. Um, I think maybe now what's happening perhaps is that new music is kind of merging into one as the world becomes more and more globalized. Um, so actually, you aren't getting composers who are more individual, but you're getting composers who are picking ideas from different countries and different other languages, which they're then kind of amalgamating um, into their own style. Um, and I think now, obviously, as well, we're losing a lot of melody, motif, you know, classical form and structures, which does make music harder to listen to if you are not musically trained. Um, and then maybe I think maybe that's why music is being perceived as slightly more elitist now, because if you really want to get into new music and you really want to get into contemporary music, it's quite hard to listen actively if you don't know what to listen for. And maybe that's why new music concerts aren't as heavily attended. I would just like to know essentially what your views are on that and the direction music's headed in now. Um, compositionally and how that's affecting the listener. Thank you, okay. Um, next I'll have Rebecca. I just wanted to contribute something as a player um, and thought that we couldn't have this whole conversation without talking a bit about how impossibly difficult it is to be a professional musician at the moment. It's, it's now nearly a year since I went on an academy tour around America with Joshua Bell and uh, my work now is, is pretty much solely education and outreach. Um, obviously, it's, it's very hard to do any concerts and the concerts we do are mostly for free or for streaming. Or, um, a lot of the structures for being paid for music are, are disappearing. The MU is trying to work on streaming at the moment. Then we've got Brexit and that's making uh, touring, in, well, very difficult, more expensive. It's not even clear what the structure is. And so we're hearing from EU um, people who book orchestras and artists that they don't even know how to do that for the next few years. Um, so the future in terms of the UK is looking dire, um, not just for education, not just for people in schools. In a way, all of us classical musicians might be doing much more education. So um, at the, through COVID, we've been going into primary schools. I've been teaching music in um, uh, state schools today, I, I just wanted to pick up on Stephen's point of how emotionally invaluable it is um, by saying that today I was playing online for people 90 plus year olds in Jewish care homes um, who were feeling, you know, quite emotionally today because it's Holocaust Day as well. And um, they were sharing their very intense memories of, of classical music through their lives and and it was yeah very moving to hear that and uh, very inspiring that we need to keep this candle <laughs> burning. So I just wonder if you have any comments on the future in that sort of sense. Yeah, the real, the very real practical problems of the moment is something that um, yes, you just wonder how are people going to emerge from that. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Um, okay, so then I'm going to have Jenny and Joel. Jenny, then Joel. Hi, um, I just wanted to go back to the whole question of education and um, I went to an enormously inspiring concert. If you remember back to the Olympics, there were concerts right around the country 
And I went to one in which Nicola Bernadetti played together with uh, a little orchestra from Ratlock Primary School near Stirling in Glasgow. And the oldest child in the orchestra was 12. And of course, it was an off, uh, offspring, if you like, from the Elsa Steamer um, orchestras that uh, Simon Bolivar um, organized in Venezuela. And it spread in Scotland, certainly, to several other schools in Aberdeen, uh, Govan Hill, uh, uh, in Glasgow. And the interesting thing is that Nicola Bernadetti, actually having inspired, uh, been inspired by Simon Bolivar and had actually led uh, the, the formation of this big noise um, orchestra, um, actually said she, was going to withdraw from it. She felt that it was the wrong thing to do at a time when education, music education in schools was being devalued and cut so severely. And I think the other element of it, although she never articulated it, was, was that it was beginning to be instrumentalized. They were talking about how well the children were doing in math, you know, in mathematics and in the rest of their studies and it sort of had begun to turn a little bit into uh, uh, a, an educational social educational cause i just wondered though when people talk about allowing young children to become involved um, in music making what what they thought about that and about nicola bernadetti's points about um proper, as she called it, um, music education. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm going to take Joel next. I just wanted to see if there's anybody else who um, wants to speak, because with the current number, what I think I might do is um, run through them all and then ask you to, the speakers, the panellists, to come back and, you know, talk about anything you want to talk about, and then we'll write, wind it up. But if there are other speak people who want to speak, I might break it down a bit. Um, this could be your, I, this is not absolutely your last chance, but it's, yeah, if you want to speak, it's getting near to the point where you, you won't be able to put your hand up again. Uh, Joel, your Hi. turn. Um, I was rather, if, listening to Dolan talking about film music, was uh, thinking really about where the future opportunities for composers lie. I mean, I think there's no doubt that we, appreciate the enduring universal appeal of classical music but it's ever evolving and so are the opportunities and I wonder where they are for artists and composers and musicians creating major works. It seems that film music is one of the uh, I, I suppose the key areas that a lot of composers are going into so I'd love to hear from you about where you think those are and also about um, I think it's really vital um, that contemporary classical music keeps evolving, that there is experimentation. And I wondered what you also thought about the way that classical music was being presented in new ways, in contexts outside of the traditional, uh, I, I suppose, halls like the Barbican and the South Bank Centre and more, you know, from car parks to VR, you know, is that something that's valid? Is it a bit of a sideshow or does it offer opportunities to experiment in new ways? 
Okay, thank you. Um, all right, Anne, Oliver? Yeah. It's Harley, actually. Uh, oh, Harley, go on then. Disguise. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the uh, I'm a massive music fan, um, everything from pop, uh, jazz, uh, really formless, experimental, improvised music, anything just about, except classical music. I struggle with classical music, despite the best efforts of my wife, who has been trying for 20 years uh, to educate me. Um, it takes me to concerts. I'm afraid um, I'm one of those guilty wool gatherers that Ivan was talking about. I like the big themes and then my mind kind of drifts in between those. Um, and I really struggle to see what the, 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 the she's shaking her head now, but uh, struggle to see the form in, in some of it. Uh, and in discussions like this, I sometimes find people can talk about as if the beauty of classical music is, is just self-evident. And if you don't see it, then there's something wrong with you. But you know, any form of music is a, is a language with its own grammar and conventions and people's expectations about what me, that you know, music is for and how it works can have a huge impact on how we appreciate music. And, you know, just for example, classical music, I, I don't get movements or what they you know, they seem very arcane to me. I don't get what musical role they play. But I, I'm sure we've all had the experience of being left nonplussed by a piece of music, which seems completely shameless, shapeless and pointless. And then hearing it, you know, in different circumstances, months later, we suddenly get it. We're not sure why. Um, and once we've seen the point, it's impossible to unsee the point. And it might be because something's just struck you in the right way or someone has said something that helps you approach it in a different way and sort of unlock its beauty for you. But given that we no longer have classical music sort of being taught in school, like we've heard, what can be done, uh, not to change classical music, but to sort of get, explain it better, I guess, and so, you know, give people roots into it that from where they are. There's a really brilliant book called Performing Music in the Age of Recording by Robert Phillip, uh, which talks about how before the age of record players in the home, people might get to hear a piece of music played live once in their life. So it was a real special occasion that when an orchestra came to town and those orchestras would, cut bits and emphasize other bits and really sort of realize the specialness of the occasion and try and sell it to the audience because that was the one chance they had. I'm not sure if that's the answer exactly, but you know, children very open, they'll listen to anything up to about the age of eight and we're missing that opportunity at schools at the moment. But what about the adults like me who might be open to persuasion? That's a great question, Harley, thank you. Um, okay, I'm gonna ask Mo to speak now. She's had her hand up, except she hasn't because she can't in her role as co-host. Um, and uh, I'll ask Mo and then Bernie, or I think it's Dennis and, um, and then Ewan, and then I'll get the speakers back to say whatever you feel like you'd like to say um, about the, uh, the comments, you know, responding to the comments, people, the questions people have raised. Um, Mo. Yeah, I just wanted to maybe touch on um, music and education a little bit, because I think that's not quite been drilled down to in, in, in the way that I understand it. Anyway, for a start, I, I totally um, I was shocked to learn a few years ago that um, in teacher training, certainly in primary school teacher training, uh, music isn't taught as something that you might engage uh, young pupils with. And so what tends to happen if you look at sort of national initiatives like Sing Up is that professional musicians and people from the music se sector are brought into schools to add that kind of extracurriculum um, aspect to it because um, it's just not part of teacher training, and, you know, in the way that we all used to sing and we always had one piano uh, teacher that could play the piano in, in assemblies and all the rest of it. So, so whoever said in the chat um, that it shouldn't just be an add-on at grade six, I think was correct. However, I think it has to be seen um, uh, 
against the background of a kind of wider societal problem that I think I think Evan touched on um, this idea of decolonizing the canon and um, and Joel made some interesting points and others about how we can expand the canon in a globalized uh, um, kind of environment but who who is kind of defending the traditional uh, canon and I think um, Stephen made a really good point I think he meant it as a joke but he said um, like most middle class people, I'm not going to pretend I'm working class. Um, and this, I think this touches on something. I think what you've got at the moment, you've got a, a kind of musical establishment that wants to pretend they're not middle class. And um, so you've got a kind of clash of um, elites, I think. You've got this kind of old um, classical music elite who aren't very good at kind of communicating what's so brilliant about classical music and defending the canon in the way that they perhaps have done in the past. Then you also have this kind of new elite, this kind of metropolitan elite that is so busy trying to be apologetic for Britain's colonizing past or, or, or the damage that the West has done, that they don't want to fight for the Western canon as well. And um, I think what ends up happening, I think um, uh, Shirley mentioned it earlier, is that we talk about music making or we try and make it inclusive and um, we don't actually kind of extol what is beautiful and transcendental. And yes, sometimes Dolan's right a little bit hard. It's not an easy everything subject. Um, and, and so we really do have this kind of societal problem that we're not able to defend what it is we love about the classic traditions of, of the West. Mm. Okay, great. Um, Dennis. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess following on from that, um, if, if I was to be really succinct in in, in saying what I think is the problem for classical music, which I really enjoy, um, is that no elite, um, no classical music. Uh, it seems to me that when you look at the history of classical music, which I'm not an expert on, but you know whether it's the Judeo-Christian tradition, which provided an impetus towards its development, uh, you know, it, it, it was an elite. Um, sort of sponsoring the arts, sponsoring music, sponsoring architecture um, and painting and so forth, uh, or through to the whole development of the Enlightenment in Western Europe, uh, 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 you know, which led to a further development in the idea of, of great music uh, representing great historical movement in human society and the development of human consciousness. Um, these things are all evident in the classical music, you know, that, well, what we call classical music, you know, Beethoven and Mozart and so forth. But um, that era is over. Uh, and, you know, as Mo was saying, we now have an elite which, and which is, is, is in essence a facet of democracy. We have, you know, anti-elitism and to be an elite is to be sort of a pariah in society to present yourself as an elite. And um, uh, so the classical music suffers accordingly, whether it's in reference to funding or whether it's in reference to, you know, uh, a, a kind of enjoying the kind of the, the, the position which, you know, an elite sponsored, you know, activity can, can have. And how can we possibly replace that by sort of kind of egalitarianism or something that sort of says that you know music is for everybody and this music is for everybody if you're going to defend a tradition you have to be prepared to take on the elements of you know an elitist point of view 
And it seems to me whether you go outside of England or go outside of Western Europe into China or Japan and other countries, it there too, you know, is, is, is found to be something that elites in those countries take up because they recognize the value of it as an elitist project and as an elitist activity rather than it being popularized in any way. Yeah, good. Um, okay, and then um, Ewan McKay. Hi, thank you for some uh, really interesting uh, points uh, and discussion. There's been a, a point that's been made uh, around education, um, and I had a, a point um, and, a, and a question as well, really. I'm a recent graduate from the University of the Highlands and Islands, um, and when I was there, I studied uh, two degrees, the Bachelor's in Applied Music, um, and then the Music and the Environment degree. And one of the uh, interesting things when studying at universities and other uh, people whom I know have gone to, to other uh, universities, they haven't necessarily been taught how to build careers in classical music and in the wider arts. But at UHI, we uh, were actually given a module called Sustainable Creative Endeavor. Uh, and this was a real eye opener uh, because it, we, we were given tools and concepts and various different ideas and actually encouraged to build uh, a sustainable working, working practice uh, as, as young developing uh, artists, composers, musicians. When I graduated from my degree uh, last year, I took a job in marketing and events coordination with a, a tiny tech company in Aberdeen. Um, and I'm now using these, these skills that I've learned through university um, and I'm, I'm marketing uh, at a local music school where I also teach uh, cello and composition, um, and also a, a fairly active emerging composer as well. So I just wonder if there is much of a future in, in classical music um, in, in this country and indeed around the world, how important it is for you know, young students to be taught and trained, not just in their instrument or in their discipline, but in how to actually build a career when they leave uh, their studies and leave university. Okay, all right, those are some really great um, contributions there. I um, will ask the speakers to come back and just talk about anything you feel like you want to um, pursue at this stage and sort of pick up on. A couple of things I feel like um, are probably fairly crucial, though I'm not demanding you respond to these, I'm just saying, you know, these are things that I've picked up on is the sort of, um, kind of the role of universities and people haven't mentioned conservatoires but um i have a the, the son of a friend is um going to a conservatoire hope, hoping to go to the conservatoire conservatoire next year and um i just i suppose it's that thing about the, you know the are universities part of the problem or as they stand at the moment in relation to classical music or are they part of the solution and um you know is it something that maybe we need to look uh you know what role can conservatoires play or are they essentially an elitist um, form? Yeah. Um, also questions to do with, um, I thought some very interesting questions there about uh, experimentation and the problem of listening to experimental music and how one overcomes that because obviously one doesn't want to um, drive the experimenters out because they're not as popular. And, you know, it, jazz used to be regarded as uh, an impossible or some jazz you know, is regarded as impossible and then it becomes very popular. So, and the same is true of, you know, music when it's first created, like Shostakovich can be seen as 
terrible and then becomes accepted. So that kind of thing. And then there's, then there's just sort of, sort of, I suppose, the big elephant in the room, which is coming out of COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, the kind of, you know, do, will we see, I this is maybe a sort of playful crystal ball opportunity, but are we going to see concerts come back because of the unique, unique experience that speakers have talked about of, of being at a concert and that very special way in which you can listen to music in a concert hall that you can't really do at home? Um, or um, is music and the experience of music actually probably going to change quite a lot as a result of the COVID experience, lockdown experience? Uh, anyway, you don't have to answer any of those questions. I just use my privileges chair to <laughs> direct things a bit, but you can ignore me. Um, uh, Ivan, do you want to start and then Lola and then Stephen? Yes, yes, but, but where, my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, I mean, we haven't really talked about the COVID thing at all, have we? Um, and the effect it might have. Um, uh, certainly, I think some of the effects of it will turn out to be permanent. I, I think that the, 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 the normal, when it comes, will be a new normal and not the old normal. And um, online forms of music making will be definitely part of them. I don't think they're going to fade away, if only for the rather banal reason that orchestras and choirs have spent so much damn money on cameras. You know? <laughs> um, it's, it's been a huge investment uh, for orchestras to move in this direction. Mm. Um, but I, I hope and trust that it'll be used in, in, a, in a creative way uh, to, as it were, in a sort of dialogue with the live event so that it won't prejudice the live event, but, but be used in some way to bolster it so that one could imagine you know, a live event being the climax of some sort of carefully um, sequenced series of online events which create an appetite for the live event in terms of, you know, introductory material that helps you familiarise people with what's going to happen at the live event, little tasters of what they might actually hear, you know, hear the players talking about the, the, the inner workings of the music. So the, 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 the new technology used to create an appetite for the, and, and sharpen you know, the, the irreplaceable, uh, wonderful things about live events. So I, I hope that's what will emerge. Because I think you know, when you're looking into the future, you know, it's very hard to disentangle the question, as I think, I think as I may have said earlier, where is classical music going from where would I really like it to go? You know? um, and um, my feeling is it's, it's a bit like, it's not like surfing, you know, you, uh, when you're out there on your surfboard, you can, you have to play on the energy of the incoming waves. You can go, you can go with the wave, you can go left or right, you know, you can steer, as it were, uh, the way good surfers do. The one thing you can't do is go backwards, you know, you can't go against the sea. Um, and I think um, acting effectively to, to bring about a future that you want means acting like a good surfer. You have to call on energies that are out there already in the culture and not be a sort of angry person who wants to go backwards. Um, uh, that, that won't help at all. Some, one, one other thing, if I may, um, somebody, possibly Sapphire, asked about where I thought music was going, um, contemporary music particularly. Um, there's a word being much bandied about that at, at the moment, which I really dislike intensely. It makes my hackles rise every time I hear it. Um, and this word is immersive. Um, I'm sorry to say, I'm always being told on Radio 3, that, particularly on a new music show, um, to my great regret, uh, warning me that I'm in for an immersive experience. And, and this makes me want to run screaming for the room, I have to say, because what, what immersive means, it, it's the hypertrophy or, or, or the degeneracy 
of the very valuable kind of subjective experience that Stephen talked about with respect to Shostakovich. Um, valuable, I think, because in the end, Shostakovich was connected to a we, as, as, as Stephen said. What these immersive experiences offer us is a kind of warm bath of fantasy, where you 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 bob pleasantly in a, in a kind of bubble bath of sound. Um, I noticed Radio 3 has launched two chill out programs very early in the morning, where which, which offer relaxation playlists. I mean, and this seems to me is the absolute nadir. I mean, I, I do notice that they've buried it in the graveyard slot of 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. respectively, which uh, makes me think that perhaps Radio Free Management don't 100% believe in this new thing that they've launched. Um, but, but, but nevertheless, it's a sign of the times, isn't it? That, that I think we're leave, we're, we are heading towards a hypertrophy of the subjective mm -hmm. in a kind of dreamland, which I think is really awful and, and very contrary to what classical music has been and could be. Thank you. I'll, I'll leave it there. Dolan? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, someone made the point about um, whether music education should teach to build a career um, in the, the Highlands ex example. And it, it, if that works, good. But I do think not everyone's an entrepreneur. And, and it, it's, a, it's a bit frustrating. You have not, not just in music, but in visual art and writing too. Everyone's expected to be their own promoter to find their own model, to, to do a bit of teaching on the side, to do whatever it takes. And that's all fine. But I think, you know, the arts flourish when you have some people who are good at being entrepreneurs who go and discover ways of making things work and then employ people to do what they're good at. You know, the, the, the concert did not always exist. It was an, it was an invention um, of, 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 of people who had the idea of, of putting these things on, of, of building an audience. And um, similar to recording, obviously the technology wasn't always there, but neither was the institution of recording. Of, of getting people to to, to, to to produce recordings and then create, creating a market for it, which didn't exist previously. Um, so I think, you know, I, I'd like to see, I think if classical music is, is to flourish, it will require a bit of entrepreneurial thinking, but I don't think that should be done to every single musician um, to, to have to think that way. So, um, I mean, the internet obviously is, is, is the resource of the moment um, and it's good that people are using it in creative ways. Um, but I think also it, we need to keep it in its place. Um, it's a great way to, to, to get the word out, to, to build audiences potentially. But again, not everyone's good at that. And I would like to see kind of more institutional ways of working. I don't know whether it's conservatoires um, or, or academic institutions. Um, but I think we do need um, kind of institution builders in a way, if that's not too off topic. But I think that that's how I see um, any, any our work flourishing. Um, so that's, that's what I make the case for. I think the internet is a fantastic way for individuals to find music they're interested in, for other people to, to put the word out and get, get, get build, build an audience. But as I say, that can't be something that every individual musician has to be expected to do. And um, so my hope would be out, out of this experience of being forced on online far more, that we'll think of ways to, for that to transform the, the online world as well. Because it, it won't, you know, we do have to get back into concert all those things. That's that's what I'm. That's what I miss, and that's what I think is valuable, and it's what I what I want people to have access to. People who don't currently have access. Okay, great. Thank you, Dolan. And finally, Stephen. Two points about pendulum swings. Um, my wife is a psychotherapist and has been doing a good, a lot of her private consulting work with people on Zoom as everybody is doing Zoom. This is the age of Zoom at the moment. And she came off it the other day and said, oh God, it's making me so aware of what I, what I pick up from people just by being in the same room with them. 
And she said she and all her clients have been saying the same thing, how desperately they're missing the almost, you know, unreadable, we unknowable ways we communicate with each other. So, you know, verbal communication is such a small part of it. And um, I think when this is all over, or whenever that may be, there's going to be a massive swing back towards people wanting to be. As somebody I said the other day said to me, because I'd written a book about Mahler's Eighth Symphony, the Symphony of a Thousand, so it legendarily needs a thousand performers. He said, I don't like Mahler's Eighth Symphony, but God, I'd give anything to be in a hall with a thousand people singing it right now. I think that is one of the waves of which Ivan speaks, which we must be ready to serve, surf when it happens. The other is, going back to the music education thing, I, I, I feel that there's been in my lifetime a colossal shift in the fundamental philosophy of education um, from what you might call the Socratic way of thinking to a utilitarian way of thinking. When I was a boy, education was at its highest about the life of the mind, about developing the mind, critical faculties, the ability to think, developing your thinking muscles in a sense. More and more it's come to be, what's the point of learning this if you're not going to do that in life, you know, later on. More and more it's about equipping people for professions. That's important. That was a reaction that, necessary, that was necessary and had to happen, but it's gone too far to the point where we're getting away from this. You know, it would be like me saying, well, I go to the gym, there's a rowing machine in the corner. What's the point of me using the rowing machine if I'm never going to be a rower? You know, um, neurology has made huge leaps and bounds and shows us how things like learning a language, learning musical notation, develops neural pathways in your brain that you might not have developed before. Um, that there are so many ways that we can enrich this extraordinary thing, which we're just beginning to understand in our ways. And music making in all its diverse forms is a stupendous way of doing that. Aside from the psychological benefits, which I talked about and Ivan uh, talked about earlier, that it provides as well, and Rebecca was talking about too. Um, so we, we need to challenge an attitude to education, which is increasingly, well, if it's not going to serve them in their career, what's the point of teaching them? You know, we've got to get away from that. Yes, it was too rarefied. It was too idealist in the world I grew up. The reaction against it had to happen. But now there has to be another reaction against that. And maybe when we come out of that, that may be another of Ivan's waves that we can all be ready to surf. But when it's there, let's not be tardy. Let's get on it and surf it. End of sermon. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, can everybody unmute themselves and give our um, speakers a round of applause? Yes, yes. That, that's another way in which completely inadequate to the task. <laughs> that was really fantastic. I have to say, um, I've learned a huge amount. Please mute yourselves again. Um, I've learned a huge amount just from listening to all the comments and questions. I, I think, I mean, I'm not um, a musical person and I've, I kind of, you know, I do tend to use music as background, but I think there is a, there is something about the idea that classical music is not for everybody. Uh, there's something about the attacks that are going on at the moment and something about the way universities are failing classical music that I think is really tragic because I think this thing about having an environment where something as amazing as an orchestra 
of you know numerous instruments numer numerous skills playing all at one time and producing something just incredibly beautiful to sort of like downplay that as a, a, an achievement of um, humanity and dismiss it in some ways, just some kind of Western elitism, I've, I find deeply, deeply shocking. So I, I have found this discussion really, really useful. It has been recorded. So if anybody wants to come back to it and listen again, which I will, and if anybody wants to come back to it and share it with friends, brilliant. Um, I'm going to be organising some more arts and society forums over the next few months just to keep our spirits up, apart from anything else, um, and also to talk about, you know, the artistic um, issues of the moment. And the next discussion is going to be focusing on architecture, and there'll be details of that available soon. So thank you, everybody, for coming and for sustaining your interest. I just thought it was a very, very useful discussion, and I really particularly thought the speakers were superlative. Thank you very, very, very much. That was great.